Blog Talk Radio. Healthy and Tone Radio with your host, Darren Batman McDuck. And now, prepare to get fat. Hey, y'all, what's cracking? And welcome back to another episode of Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio, brought to you by I'mTheFatMan.com. Mentioning I'mTheFatMan.com, if you haven't gone and checked the blog, please go over and check the blog. I just did a really good blog post about the five best oils to cook with for those of you who are out there and don't know the five best oils to uh, cook with. As always, before I get started, please connect with me. Help me build this community. You can connect with me on Facebook at Facebook.com slash I'mTheFatMan, and that's I. M, like Mary, the fat man. You should know that by now. You can also connect with me on Pinterest. I was trying to find my Pinterest handle because I always mention it on the air. And actually, it's just under my name, Darren McDuffie. So just type in my name and it'll bring me up and you can connect with me on Pinterest. And I have all the blog posts that I did and all the um, uh, podcasts that I did as well. And you can go on there and it'll take you directly to it. You can also get all the shows, the past shows on iTunes and Stitcher. And you can listen on Blog Talk Radio. And do please share these things. This, uh, again, I really want to build this community and bring you bigger and better things. So if you can share them with people, um, that'll be great as well. Tonight, we have another good show uh, I found this gentleman through Kindle. I actually read one of his uh, books before on glutathione, and maybe I can get him to come back and talk a little bit more about that later on. But I thought it was a little bit more advanced than what I wanted to do tonight. But I know tonight's going to be a very good show because we'll be talking about his book, uh, Natural Deception, and we'll be talking particularly about the organic industry. Some people say commercial is better. Some people say organic is better. And tonight we're going to find out the real truth. So without further ado, let me bring Joy Lot on. Hey, Joy, welcome to Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio. How are you doing tonight, man? Hi, Darren. Thanks. I'm doing well. Great, great, great. Let's get let's get started. I um usually just ask people to kind of tell their story because it seems like everyone has a story when it comes to um, how they got into taking better care of themselves, how they got into better health. Can you kind of share your story with the audience and how you started writing these books and how you just started to take a a, a more uh, a more uh, positive effect on your health? Sure, <laughs> it's a bit of a long story, but I'll um, I'll try to give the synopsis. So, um, the path that uh, brought me to better health was actually uh, through trying to be healthy and getting uh, sicker as a result. And that's because I took it to an extreme. I, uh, I, I you know, I went through uh, veganism and then raw veganism, then uh, jump ship and, and uh, went over to paleo. And then, uh, of course, took that to the extreme doing low-carb paleo. And um, then basically zero-carb paleo. And um, particularly having already been malnourished, um, then you know all of that was a was a, a, a big failure. And so I had to take a real 
honest look at what was going on and um, whether, you know, because my health was in, in bad shape at that time. And uh, all of my attempts to try and get healthier were backfiring because I was malnourished. So I had to take a look and see, you know, well, what's really going on? And um, it was hard to really, you know, tell that truth finally that all of my attempts, because they were so extreme, you know, I was very rigid and restrictive and everything that I was doing were never going to work. I was essentially starving myself. And that was when I started to be more honest with myself and um, recognized that, you know, I, I know that a lot of people struggle with, um, you know, they feel that they overeat. And I used to be there, you know, when I was, when I was much younger, that was a, a big struggle for me. I would, I would binge frequently and, um, that was very, very, very uncomfortable and painful. You know, mm -hmm. it felt like it was just totally out of control. And that, I think that was a lot of what fueled my uh, obsession with being healthy, but I just took it to such an, uh, to an unhealthy extreme. And, uh, but it was interesting to come kind of uh, to the other end of things and um, to be undernourished, not be eating enough. And so I had to find the balance between, you know, the the history of binging and then the also then uh, what followed, which was about nearly 20 years of uh, restriction, extreme restriction, and then navigate all of that to find balance, which is so much nicer. You know, it's no more yeah. obsession with food, no more um, thinking about food all the time, no more worrying if I can, you know, maintain control. There's just a, a tuning into what the actual needs of the body are, and that feels really good, and it works. You know, I feel much healthier. Yeah. You mentioned uh, veganism. What I've been noticing is that um, a lot of people are starting to come forward who were, you know, former vegans and starting to introduce meat. I've listened to, I listen to a lot of podcasts myself, and mm -hmm. what I'm noticing is that these people are actually you know, changing up. What was the the changing point for you? Was it because you were were malnourished, or how did that happen? Yeah, I I knew that it wasn't working. You know, it had been um, I had I had been w with very you know a few um, exceptions. I had been a very strongly, rigidly committed vegan for about seventeen years, and. Um, at the end of that, you know, for the last, for I guess about the last five years of that, I knew it wasn't working, but I was afraid of doing something else because I had become so ideologically committed to it, you know, because veganism is not just about health. It becomes uh, all-consuming, you know. It, I mean, it can be, not necessarily for everybody. I don't necessarily mean to suggest that veganism is always bad or, mm -hmm. or harmful, but it certainly can be when it's taken to an extreme, and that was my... That was my experience, and so I just knew it wasn't working. You know, I was I was um, severely underweight, and I was afraid of food. I was afraid of uh, all kinds of you know cross contamination with things, and um, and and being pure. You know, there's uh, I think a lot of people who are uh, long term vegans can get trapped in that. Again, it's not everybody, but some people can. It's this. You know, um, th there's something noble about it, wanting to do the right thing for the body and do the right thing for the environment and the right thing for animals and all of that. But um, it can become very unhealthy because 
it's too rigid and um so that was my experience and i just knew that i needed to do something different but i was afraid so it took a long time like i said it was probably about five years of wanting to do something different but not really having the the um the courage to do something different and then i did get to a point where uh i i just felt that i had to do something i really had i had been i you know i would go to the uh the supermarket and i would i would go to the meat counter i'd been doing that for <laughs> for, for you know maybe six months and thinking mm-hmm. maybe today i'll do it maybe today i'll do it and i never did and what i what i did was um I put myself. I, I went to a. Um, I put myself in another extreme situation, which is, you know, given my history, not surprising. I decided I would go to a, a wilderness school for three months in the middle of the winter, and they, they, you know, there there was there were really no vegan options. I mean, there were some vegetables, but it, <laughs> it was mostly meat, and um, I knew that going in, and I, you know, I knew that that was probably the only way that I was going to be willing to actually make that dietary change. Yeah, so you had to kind of baptize yourself back into the, the meat and yeah. things, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you could say that. I'm going to um, take you back you know, to the uh, to way before. I think in the book you said you were living in California, and you said this whole book uh, came about as a because you had bought a sack of beans and, and, and saw that they were from, I believe it was China. Can you yeah, kind of expand right. on that and how, how you this whole book came about again? Yeah, right. So so the, the genesis, I think, was when I, as you say, I bought a, a bag of beans and I, I saw that it was product of China, and I, and it, but it was USDA organic, you know, it had the USDA organic seal <laughs> on it, and I thought... You know, really, there's some there, there are agents from the USDA over in China who are monitoring this and and verifying. You know, they're giving their stamp of approval that this was a- actually produced organically. That seems unlikely to me. <laughs> so uh, I started to question it and investigate. You know, at the time, um, I didn't I didn't really want to look too deeply, but it did it it really planted the seed and it started to. To, to gnaw at me, you know, it was bothering me. What's really going on here? And so I started to look into it bit by bit, and um, then over the course of a number of years, it just started to um, unwind, and I, you know, I learned more and more and saw what was going on. I started to then dig into the, um, you know, the, more of the, the research and, you know, the actual data and numbers coming from the USDA or from... Um, the organic certifying agencies to see what you know what what's really going on and um that was it was an eye opening investigation yeah yeah now one of the things that's kind of startled me is that organic is 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 big but is is growing bigger and right. in in the book you said that it's it's really big business and i wanted you to kind of go in in and explain why it's big business, and the fact that also we think that it's so many different companies, but it's not a lot of different companies. It's basically, you know, just the bigger companies. Can you kind of talk about that? Right. So um, I'll take the, the, the second part first, which is that like everything else, the uh, mom-and-pop shops, so to speak, are being gobbled up by the by the big giants. 
Um, so certainly, you know, you can grow your own or you can uh, find local producers who are small, producers who are committed to the health of the land and the health of the product that they're producing. Um, but that's not really what we're talking about here. What, we, what we're talking about is um, things like um, earthbound farms, for example, which most people who, are, who shop organic are going to be familiar with earth, earthbound farms because a lot of the, um, a lot of the produce is, is, is coming from there. And, you know, that's a, that actually is, a, um, is still an independent, I believe, but I, I don't recall off the top of my head. No, 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 they were bought up by White Wave, I think. Uh, which is, you know, it, it's all very incestuous. So the, the, it all goes back up to, I don't know, what, you know, let's say there's like five big companies who are really in that business. But, um, the, you know, Earthbound Farms started out, um, I don't have all the, the this information in front of me at the time, at the moment, but um, mm-hmm. when it when it began, it was, it was only a, a handful of acres, and it was being farmed by two people. And then over the years, it, it, they were buying up other farms, and it turned into a corporation. And um, I don't recall exactly, but it, it was like some, it's something like fifty thousand acres, I think now. Uh, so it's big, big, big business. And um, and then, the you know that's the same with um, many of these many of these companies. You know, it will, like it will say Earthbound Farms, or it will say. Um, uh, like uh, I'm trying to think of of some of these other uh, brands, but but their 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 parent companies are big business, you know, and some of them are even owned by uh, General Mills, Coca Cola, PepsiCo, and yeah, so. Mm, go ahead. I was just saying, I think in the book you mentioned, um, is it Hain Celestial? That's one mm-hmm. of them. That's kind of owned by. Yeah, that's uh, one of the big ones. Mm-hmm. Right. Right, right. Why do you think these these small? I, 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 obviously, it's, it's very uh, straightforward that why most of them will sell to the bigger companies out of money. But is there anything underlying other than just money? Someone coming and saying, "Hey, we offer you two, three million dollars to sell us your small organic company, and we'll still keep it running, and you can go off and do what you want to you want to do." But what is there? What else is there besides money, or is there anything besides money? Well, I think a lot of people have their hearts in the right place, you know. They I mean, um you know, back to the other question that you asked uh, uh, which is about um the 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 market for organic has has exploded and um in, you know, in the book I give some numbers to um put you know, put that in perspective, but over the course of a couple of decades the um the demand for for organic in the U.S. is has outpaced the ability to produce that amount of organic in the United States. So there's a huge demand, and um, so that's you know there, I think a lot of people who are involved in that for for one thing is probably just happening way too quick. You know I mean if you think about. Um, I think we've all probably had some experience that we we started with something, even if it's just you know volunteering for uh, for you know a local charity or something, and then the next thing we know, um, you know we we find you know there's, there's a, a, excitement because some big thing is happening, 
and uh, it's all happening much faster than what we were expecting or anticipating. And we can get swept up in that. You know, there's kind of this mania that can occur. And we might not find, you know, it might be days, weeks, months, or years later that we kind of come out of the days and we realize, wow, I wasn't thinking clearly. This wasn't really what I wanted to be doing. This was um, way too stressful and not really, <laughs> you know, authentic for me. So I'll buy, I'm going to bow out now. And I think that that's what's happened for some of the people who are involved in organics is, you know, when it, when you read the stories of some of these people, they are, um, you know, they're, they're in it for the right reasons, but then they kind of get swept along with the, with the excitement, and there's maybe promises that uh, they're going to create a better world. You know, I mean, if you believe in the ethics um, of of organic production, then it's easy, I think, to believe that um, more organic is going to be better because it's going to replace, you know, it's easy to think it's going to replace conventional production, which involves a lot of chemicals and a lot of toxins. And so, uh, you know, if you really believe in organic and then some, uh, you know, some big money comes along and says, hey, we're going to, we're going to further that agenda. We're going to help you. We're going to empower you to make the world a better place. You, you can, you can get swept up in that. But what's happening is not that. It, the, the demand for um, organic isn't isn't by and large is not really replacing conventional. It's just adding to, <laughs> mm-hmm. and so um, the end of the day, there's not really less destruction going on. There's more. Yeah. What about? Um, I know places. Uh, more places are starting to to carry organic goods. You right. have I'm I'm here in Florida. I have Publix, which is a, a supermarket. Mm-hmm. They carry a lot of organics. You have Walmart that are carrying yeah. a, a, a lot of organics, and then now Target is carrying a lot of organics. Mm-hmm. And in a way, it's getting organics more exposure. But is it actually is it hurting organics uh, in in any sense? Well, yeah, I don't know. I mean, in it, yes and no. Um, I guess the way that it hurts is that. Um, the so so um, the, the way that the organic certification works in the United States is that uh, the USDA, which is the U.S. Department of Agriculture, um, has a, um, a, a an advisory board called the uh, the National Organics um, something <laughs> National Organics Board, and they. Um, they are supposed to set the standards for what is organic and what is not. And so for anybody who wants to cheat the system or anybody who wants to be organic in um, in name but not necessarily in spirit, you know, the earth, earthbound farms of the world, then, uh, which is what's, what we're seeing in Walmart and uh, you know Publix and all of the, and Target and all the rest of the places, you know those big box stores and the, and the big chain grocery stores are all carrying the the um, you know the 
organic that is organic in name but not in spirit. So they, in order to be certified organic, they have to adhere to the letter of the law, but um, because their hearts aren't necessarily, you know, these corporate hearts aren't really necessarily in um, uh, really in the game of organics. They don't really believe in it. You know, it's not a it's not a, an, a cause for them. It's just another way to make money. Then uh, their influence on the uh, the advisory board that sets the national standards um, tends to water down what the standards are. So the the local small producers who are you know really believe in organic the, the, the in the spirit of organic they're going to do the right thing they're not going to be trying to cut corners just to turn a profit but the organic that's being sold in Walmart for example uh you can pretty much trust that the corporations that produce that food are what they have one goal which is to make money and at whatever the cost so they they work in order to water down the standards so that it's easier for them to make higher profits yeah yeah let's get into um because i know we we got about probably 20 more minutes or so um i wanted to get into talking about uh pesticides before i do i know i got some people on the switchboard if you have a question just hit one and I'll bring you on to ask uh, Joy a question. The number here is 646-716-9371. For those of you out there who are listening who may have a question and want to call in, the number again is 646-716-9371. And again, if you're on the switchboard and you have a question, just hit 1, and um, I'll bring you on. Um, one of the things that blew my mind, Joy, <laughs> was pesticides. Um <clears throat> You talked about the pesticides, and you went into a lot of detail about um, pesticides, particularly with uh, within the organic industry. And I thought that they used no pesticides at all, but that's not true, right? Well, no, it's not true. Um, but they are the the um, standards do define what can and cannot be used, and it is a very limited set of what can be used in organic agriculture. So I don't want to give listeners the wrong idea and, and think that it's a it's a complete free for all. There there are definitely standards, but uh, right, a lot of people are under the misconception that no uh, pesticides are used at all, and that's not true. Yeah, you took me back to my old. I uh, I come from a pharmaceutical background, and I I sold uh, antibiotics, and uh, it it jumped out at me that streptomycin was used in the production of organic fruit. And there was one other, and I didn't write it down. But um, And then you kind of explained how some of the organic bodies were voting to keep streptomycin as something they still wanted to use, and then some were were, were voting against it. So, right. um, yeah, so the organic industry is not what we think it is. You mentioned that a little bit earlier with regards to, you know, the money-making, but it really isn't what we really uh, deem it to be. Well, right. I mean, I don't. again, I don't want to give the wrong impression. The, the, so there, it's true that those, um, those drugs are allowed in the production of uh, fruit, uh, tree fruit, but... Um, it, again, it's not a free-for-all. I mean, there has to be a demonstrated uh, need 
before that. But but your point, which um, I, I think is a very important point, is that the the board, the advisory board that sets those standards, is moving in a direction of allowing more and more, being much more lenient in what can be used. And um, I think I mentioned this in the book. The so so the voting record is public information, and it's very um, telling to take a look at that voting record because. The uh, the representatives who are on the board are uh, that changes every couple of years who's on the board, but the, they tend to be uh, split kind of down you know fifty fifty more or less of uh, representatives who are f- like small organic farmers, uh, and then those who represent big business, and so they'll they'll be a representative from General Mills or PepsiCo or uh, Whole Foods, <laughs> and. The voting record is that the representatives from the big business almost always vote in, together as a um, you know as a as a as a uh, block in ways that tend to water down the standards and weaken the standards and so you know you just see over time little by little it's not dramatic but little by little those standards are getting eroded. Mm-hmm. Your book really, really gave me some kind of aha moments. It really made me think because I know I tend to preach organic and eat organic whenever possible. And something really struck me in the book. And you said you were talking about pesticides. You said not the, not to really worry about pesticides. What we really need to worry about is insecticides. Why? Right. Well, so pesticide is a is an umbrella term. Um, so the herbicides right. in general are less problematic than the insecticides. The insecticides and the, and the fungicides both, I think, can be more problematic. And um, the reason for that is, you know, it, it varies from specific pesticide uh, to pesticide. So that, but in general, we can say that the herbicides tend to have an action that is not going to be as harmful for humans because um, they work... You know they're they're intended to harm plants, not humans, and um, you know because our our biology as a as an animal we're going to be different from plants, so there's some overlap um, to be certain. You know I mean there's some herbicides that have been shown to have harmful effects in humans, but for example glyphosate, which is the which is Roundup, which is uh, you know what everybody is up all up in arms about. Turns out that thus far there have been no credible studies showing that uh, it has any significant toxicity to humans. It's an herbicide; it kills plants. Um, but there are other, uh, there are insecticides in particular that, because they're designed to kill insects, which are much more closely related to us than plants, then the mechanisms the chemical uh the chemicals that attack and kill insects can do harm to humans and so by and large the insecticides are are highly toxic to humans yeah what are your what are your thoughts on uh genetically modified organisms well you know it's interesting somebody asked me that question the other day and my view is that um there's no uh, they're good for profit 
Mm-hmm. Maybe I mean we don't know, but they're good. For, they're good for the profit of the of the companies that make that make the the GMO. Um, whether they're profitable for farmers, I'm not sure. That seems that you know that's debatable. But there's certainly no advantage, no benefit, no health benefit for us, for those who eat the food, and um, and then they're designed. I mean, the, the, there are various types of GMO. Uh, GMOs, but the but the main driving force at the moment is um, is, is pesticide resistant plants. You know that's what like Roundup Ready corn is. It's a it's a plant that will is resistant to Roundup, so you can spray Roundup on it, and it will kill everything else, but it won't kill the corn. Right. Now uh, that is obviously promoting the use of pesticides. And even if glyphosate or Roundup is not proven to be harmful for humans, I mean, it may be demonstrated at some point, but thus far it hasn't been. But even if that's the case, that doesn't mean that it's a healthy thing in in general, right? I mean, it, we're not right. disconnected from <laughs> we're not disconnected from the environment. I mean, we're, we're, if if the if the uh, you know, the, all of the insects were killed, then we would die too because we're dependent upon them. If all the plants were killed, we would die too. So um, anything that is destructive to the ecosystem in general isn't beneficial for us. And so I'm, I, you know, I don't think that there's any any convincing argument to be made for why GMOs are a good thing for us. <laughs> you know, again, they're... They're great for Syngenta and Monsanto, but not necessarily for me. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you on that one. Um, I wanted to get into just kind of switch gears for a moment and get out of that industry because I think when people think mm-hmm. of organics, they think more of plants, uh, fruits, mm-hmm. vegetables, things like that. But mm-hmm. I wanted to kind of get into meat. We, sure. we kind of started the show talking about meat and wanted to get into that. And one of the things that um, I come from, again, as I mentioned, the pharmaceutical industry, and I always had this vision in my head of farmers out there with cows with these needles injecting them with antibiotics. But it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't actually happen like that. You kind of no. enlighten. How does, how does it actually happen? Well, they, uh, for the, for, it's mostly in the feed. That's the primary way in which the antibiotics are administered. And then, you know, they, they may be administered for uh, through a needle for illness, but that's not the primary way in which antibiotics are used. The main way that they're used is um, it's to accelerate growth. That's why they're fed uh, to the animals. And technically, that's starting to be frowned upon. But um, but but practically speaking, that's the only that is why people do it, and it's not likely to stop anytime soon because. Um, you know, you have to consider that, um, for example, a cow, you know, the, the life of the cow in a commercial, conventional um, process is that they're going to spend the majority of their life on grass. And then, so it, does, it doesn't matter if the, the cow, where, where, you know, if the cow is going to be 100% grass-fed, organic, or um, going to be put onto a conventional feedlot, they're going to spend most of their life on grass, but then um, grass doesn't fatten up cows not nearly as well as as uh, corn and soy will, and so they put them 
uh, for the last month of their life or so, the cows are going to go to a feedlot. And while they're in that feedlot, so it's very concentrated, uh, you know, there are a lot of animals in a small space. And so um, there are a couple of reasons why the antibiotics are included in the feed. Um, like I said, the main one is so that they grow. The other reason is as a preventative because of the horrific conditions under which the animals are living, you know, it's really easy for disease to spread. So um, they, the solution that they've come up with is just add antibiotics to the feed and then you, uh, and you don't have to worry about the long-term health of the animal because they're only there for a month. Mm. Then they're going to be slaughtered. Right. You also mentioned, I think, that they had a, a pellet or something on their ear where it's, I don't know if that was the antibiotics or the hormones. That's the I can't hormones. Remember. Yeah, they they, okay, they, the they hormones, administer yeah. hormones through the the, the pellet in the area. Okay, and it, something else that struck me uh, as well is is the animal welfare. I think sometimes people think organic takes a little bit better care of the animals, but in your book it kind of exposed the truth that that's not necessarily true. No, I mean the organic standards do set. Um, slightly higher standards for some types of animals. So, for example, uh, poultry, the the space mandated for organic poultry and uh, is, is ever so slightly greater. But, but from a practical standpoint, you know, if you <laughs> if you were the chicken, uh, I'm not sure that it would make that much of a difference to you, you know, I mean it's it's fairly horrific conditions either way and they're very similar, you know. I mean, the poultry um, production facilities are these giant uh, warehouses, and in uh, in conventional poultry production, there's they don't even have the pretense of of outdoor access. But then in uh, organic poultry production, it's it's mandated by the standards that there has to be outdoor access, but that's not defined. So this is a, a you know this is where we see the difference between the spirit and the letter of the law. The the large scale commercial organic poultry producers have these enormous warehouses where they have they'll have a you know a tiny caged in you know four by four uh, outdoor access that's you know there's no grass there's no dirt it's it's uh, concrete, and practically speaking, the chickens never actually go out there because uh, we're talking about uh, warehouses that have tens of thousands of chickens in them. You also mentioned a practice that I wasn't aware of, and that was debeaking the uh, the chickens. And in, mm-hmm. in a way, it's 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 uh, for their own protection. But I always thought that. Conventional did that just to be able to say, you know, just you, you always think a conventional versus organic. Organic is better, but organic right. also debeaks the chickens as well, right? Right, yeah, and I, I was surprised at that too because I, I, like you, I thought that that was not done in organic, but uh, there's, it, but apparently it is. <laughs> it's it's definitely an eye-opening um, investigation when you start to look into these things. You know, the, uh, we're allowed to. To believe that organic is always going to be this better, nicer um, thing, you know, more humane, and there's going to be lots of sunshine and green grass, but 
not 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 really the case. Right, right. Um, the last thing I wanted to get into, and I'll, I'll let you go. I know you're doing your supper time here, and that's mm-hmm. and thank you again for being on the show. Sure. Um, was the whole thing about the environment? Because normally, when you when you're on the vegan side, vegans are saying it's better for the environment that you know we only eat plants and vegetables, and then you jump over to the you know the the meat side. The meat is you know where people love to eat meat like me, and then they're saying, okay, well everything is sustainable, this or that, and you kind of looked into the research. So, can you tell us what is better for the environment? Is it the vegans, or is it you know the people who want plant based, or is it the people who want um, things to to remain the same and kind of continue eating meat? Who, what's better for the environment? Well, neither. Um, you know, I mean, the, I think both of those are kind of red herrings, and um, so they're you know they're distractions from the uncomfortable truth, which is that the whole uh, food production industry, at, at almost at all levels, is completely unsustainable. <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter if you're meat eater, vegan, or raw mm-hmm. vegan, or um, even. Even grass-fed beef, um, unfortunately, you know the, the the numbers have been run, and um, if if everybody wanted to start eating grass-fed beef and you know 100% grass-fed beef instead of uh, the the uh, feedlot grain-fed beef, they would uh, you'd have to cut down you know deforest Brazil pretty much you know <laughs> it's right right. So, so it's 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 definitely an uncomfortable um, thing, you know, to take a look at. But I I feel that if we don't start, if we're not willing to look at that and really start to tell the truth about it, then um, we're just lying to ourselves, and um, you know, we'll, we'll eventually we're going to be faced with it. There's no way to yeah. avoid it forever. Yeah. Last question for you. Um, mm-hmm. Where do you think the future of organics is? is it, do you think it's going to continue to rise? It's going to kind of tail off. Where do you think it's all going? Oh well, I don't know. Um, I think it will continue to rise for some time. I, I I'm not good at predicting the future, but I, I suspect that um, you know, as I say, the the entire food production industry is really not sustainable and um you know human population growth is continuing to explode and so the demand for food is increasing and the argument of the um of of you know the Monsantos and Syngentas of the world is well we have to find ways to produce greater yields in order to feed everybody but if you just think about that for a moment you know you realize well there are limits. You can't continue that forever. And we're kind of, um, what's the expression, um, robbing Peter to pay Paul. Exactly. <laughs> um, well, mom used to say and, <laughs> Yeah. And so that's sort of the situation we find ourselves in. And I think that um, in the long run, the, we, have to, we, have, we have to have sustainable food production. And that will, that will come one way or the other. I mean, I think our... Most likely, our arms will be forced, in, 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 and you know we won't have a choice in, in the matter any longer. Yeah, 
Yeah, I, I kind of agree with you. We want to have to come up with some better ways to, to feed people. But, yeah. uh, Joey Lott, thank you for being on and uh, really enjoyed your book. And as I said on the, the uh, before the show started, I actually read your first book, which is uh, on glutathione. So mm-hmm. at some point I'd love for you to come back and talk about uh, glutathione because that caught sure. my eye. That was the first one. And yeah. then I said, well, you know what? The audience might not be that advanced. If you're listening, I'm not. <laughs> but it's it's kind of a scientific it's book. It's technical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a little bit technical. And if you don't understand glutathione, it'll, you'll get lost. But when I saw, but we can break it down. It will, we can make it simple. Yeah, yeah. And natural deception is kind of right up everybody's alley because most of us are trying to either we're either eating organic or trying to morph towards eating organic. And some people mm-hmm. might be in the uh, might be in the conventional. So. Again, Joey, thank you for being on, man, and I look forward to maybe connecting with you again and having you on uh, on the show again. That sounds great. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks for the interview again. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. Good interview. Hope you learned something. You should have learned something about the organic industry. Like, organic is always not necessarily better. I know I learned a lot from reading a book reading the book is, is as far as um learning about pesticides and, and learning about different things. Uh, next week we're actually gonna have a Monday show and the show is going to be a little bit earlier. It's going to be at seven o'clock with a gentleman named Hal Elrod and um he'll be talking about his book, The Miracle Morning. The book has inspired me to get up at five o'clock every morning. Normally I get up five o'clock uh, on the mornings I go to the gym, but it's inspired me to get up five o'clock every morning and do meditation and do some things. And I can actually see a lot of things that my life have been, been changing as of late by kind of making that commitment. But it do means that I have to go to bed early every night. So I'm usually in bed by nine, nine thirty, and then I'm up at five to do meditation and starts my day off really, really good. So um, we'll be talking to Hal Elrod about the miracle morning the week after we are going to be um, speaking with Kathleen DeCharia. I'm not sure how to pronounce Kathleen's name, but she's a functional diagnostic nutritionist, and she wrote a book called The Hidden Connection. And then we'll be talking to her the week after, which I believe is the last week of February. We'll have Dave Sandoval on, and Dave will be talking about the Green Foods Bible. So if you want to know about green foods, superfoods, Dave's going to be on to talk about that. And he's also the founder of Purium, which is one of the companies that I kind of recommend uh, if you're looking for products, pure products with no fillers. So he'll he'll be on and he'll be talking about that. Then we'll do everything again in March. I'm looking for guests to be on in March. Um, so, uh, again, great show tonight. Uh, again, check out the blog. Uh, I'm the Fat Man. I have stuff on the blog. The most recent post was the five best oils you can cook with who have a healthy heart and also have healthy cholesterol. So I give it all to you on the blog. Leave some comments there and check out all of the older blog posts. Don't forget to connect with me on Twitter at the fat underscore man. And you can connect with me on other social outlets that I mentioned at the top of the show. Again, y'all, thanks for listening. Peace and love. And I'll see you on the same fat time, same fat channel Monday. Peace and love.